is risen. Absolutely. Happy Easter, everyone. Um, just so, thank you. I'm just so excited about being here today, and I just uh, am looking forward to diving into uh, just the, the Easter story and also some other places in Scripture, and it is my prayer that we will uh, uh, finish uh, our time together transformed and, and experiencing God in a much deeper way than we ever have before. If you'd like to, uh, you can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, it'll be on the screen, and I just want to read the Easter story to you. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. The men, then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Then they remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his eleven disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who had told the apostles what had happened. Now listen to this next statement. But the story sounded like nonsense. The Greek there actually uh, carries with it more like they sounded crazy, like they needed to be heavily medicated, right? That they were just like all over the place. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men. So they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again wondering what had happened. You guys pray with me. Lord, I know that we come here this morning in many different places spiritually, emotionally. Some of us are here because of habit, while others are truly seeking. Some lives have been crushed this week, while others may be on a high. God, I just know that the only way that we can experience what you would have for us today is if this place just becomes thick with your presence and that you will open up our ears and our eyes and our heart and our soul and our minds to what you would have for us today. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I was reading a book by Tim Keller, The Reason for God. And I wanted to share a quote out of that uh, book with you. Tim Keller wrote, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that He said. If He didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what He said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like His teaching, but whether or not He rose from the dead. The resurrection justifies Jesus' life, His ministry, and His death. Without the resurrection, the Apostle Paul wrote in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 17, And if Christ has not been risen, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. Everything. Jesus' life, Jesus' teachings, Jesus' death, all hinges on the resurrection. And it's the disciples, when they first heard it, they didn't believe it, right? They thought it was nonsense. And why shouldn't they think it was nonsense? Why, didn't they th- why shouldn't they think it was absurd? They had witnessed, they had seen Jesus arrested. They had seen Jesus beaten. They had seen Jesus whipped. They had seen Him carry His cross to the place of skulls and then nailed to that cross. They had witnessed firsthand the soldier taking out a lance and running it through his side. They had also witnessed his body being wrapped in linen and being put in a cave into a tomb and a big stone rolling in front of it. And I don't care if you're the president of the Optimist Club. At that point, things are looking pretty bleak, right? So, when the women came and said, wow, Jesus is risen, no wonder they thought it sounded like nonsense because 2,000 years ago, just like today, 2,000 years ago, dead people stayed dead. And unless you're watching a zombie movie, that's just the way life is. And that's why they thought it was nonsense. They thought it was absurd. And really, that's it, right? I mean, that's why we're all here today. Because something happened that had never happened before and has not happened since. This is why earlier in 1 Corinthians, in the first chapter, the Apostle Paul says that the gospel sounds like utter foolishness to the world's philosophers, scholars, and brilliant debaters. That's what Paul said. It's because the empty tomb is the greatest paradox mankind has ever known. 
The path to life in the eyes of the world looks exactly like death. And I believe that that's why it's so hard for people to find life, because it looks like death. And this is the image that the Apostle Paul's trying to convey in Colossians 3, chapter, uh, in verse 3. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Perhaps a, a sharper reading of that, if I may translate this, maybe a way to say this, following Jesus into the metaphorical tomb. When you follow Jesus into the metaphorical tomb, there you will find the secret of life. Jesus, when he was facing crucifixion, explains this heavenly paradox with a very earthly example. In John chapter 12 and verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Listen to this next part. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me. Because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. This declaration must have been terrifying to the disciples. Absolutely terrifying. Because he was saying, look, if you're my followers, that you need to follow me into this metaphorical tomb, this spiritual tomb, and die to yourself. It was so hard because they were experiencing, they, they were expecting a temple. And what Jesus gave them was a tomb. John Bickley, who's on Wise Counsel here, him and I are writing another book together, and he conveyed a story to me uh, that, that's going to be uh, in, in the book, and I want to share it with you because I think it really captures the, the weight of what we're talking about here. When uh, John was on a guided tour in, in Israel, the, the guide took them to where they believe the tomb of Jesus is. And the guide explained all the historical context and how, how people were prepared for death and about the big stone and, and all of these things. And then the guide turned to the group of about 40 sojourners and said, you may enter the tomb and then walked away. They'd been invited to enter, John says, but everybody was just frozen still. They had been invited to enter, but minutes passed and nobody spoke and nobody moved. He said eventually, people started to actually walk away from the tomb. Where you would think there would be a stampede into the tomb, people were 
backing off because of the weight of what they've been invited to do. He said after several more minutes, everyone began to weep, including himself. And many of them just sat because they were so overwhelmed by the invitation. The difficulty of the grace that we have been offered is this open invitation. And the gateway to life looks a lot like death. And on the account of the resurrection, Christianity is a living faith centered around a living Savior who rolled the stone away, rolled away the block between us and an eternal relationship with Him. It is this reality that, that Jesus speaks about in Matthew where I believe that this is one of the most misunderstood sayings or, or Scripture uh, of Jesus' words ever presented. But I want to re-approach it with the backdrop of the tomb. And I think that it will illuminate a lot more for us. It's found in Matthew chapter 7 and beginning in verse 13. Jesus says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for many to choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. And the reality is the pathway to life, the causeway to life is flanked by terminally high gorges because to live an extraordinary life while not becoming prideful, remote, or pious is indeed the narrow way. To confess Jesus as your Lord and actually submit to his teachings is indeed the narrow way. To accept the unmerited gift of grace while not judging others is indeed the narrow way. To proclaim the power of Christ to the hostile forces of this world armed with nothing more than the love of God is indeed the narrow way. The narrow path is treacherous and full of peril. Ironically, the longer somebody is on that path, it seems that they may stumble or get distracted. And there's nothing new or unusual about this idea of a narrow path. We experience it every day when we get into our cars we experience it when we go to work or go to school or even as you drove here today. The idea of having to keep in, in a certain way, going a certain way with your eyes fixed somewhere in order to arrive somewhere safely. Because the reality is if you got in your car and you looked at your feet, you would end up in a ditch or wrapped around a pole, right? Or even if you looked to the end of your hood and looked at the road right in the front of your hood, 
You would not be long for this world. No. How do you drive safely? We're all taught this in driver's ed. You look where you're going. All of us, our parents have told us this, right? I coach a cycling team and, and, and a junior cycling team. And we were out, you know, a couple of weeks ago and we were going around a corner and all my guys ended up in the bushes. I said, where were you looking? I was looking down. No, you got to look. Keep your eyes fixed on where you want to go. And that's why the path is narrow because, you know what, there's, there's people yelling, no, you got to do this religion or you got to do these rituals or you got to do this. And then on the other side of the causeway, you know, you have people, no, you know, be a hedonist and, and, and you know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you shall die. And we're like looking this way and this way. And we don't have our eyes on the destination, which is the open tomb of life. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He actually continues this idea with two more sections, which I think will increasingly illuminate our thoughts on this. He says, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. That is the way they act. Can you pick grapes from a thorn bush or figs from a thistle? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. You know, Jesus talks a lot about being known right for your, your actions or right by results. Here's one section saying, look at the fruit, not, not the shadows and the, min, and, and the mirrors and, and the fog and all that. In Matthew chapter 11, when people were, were accusing Jesus of being a drunkard and a glutton, Jesus said, hey, you know what? A minister, a prophet, a teacher is, made, is known right by their results. There's a difficulty in waiting for results, especially uh, in this culture. And staying true to Jesus' metaphor, um, you know, culturally waiting for different things, I think, is pretty foreign to us. In fact, if you were born after the 60s, you probably have really no concept of what fruit seasons are whatsoever. Because, you know what, we can go to Publix or whatever just about any time of year and, and get a honeydew melon. That, that we can get, you know, uh, strawberries that have been generically, or generically, uh, genetically engineered with fish scales or something like that. So they're nice, big, and, and, and red. No joke. That's true. 
When I was a kid, there was only a certain time when you could get fresh strawberries or melons uh, or corn, or just uh, to mention a couple of those things. But today, with the globalized uh, produce market, that any time of the year you can go to your market and you can get a, a, a honeydew melon that was grown in Chile at your local store if you're willing to pay for it. And this diminished sense of seasons has put an obstacle in our way to understanding what Jesus is trying to say here. Because in a culture of on-demand entertainment, microwave popcorn, and instant messaging, many Christians have been lured into the idea of what I see in front of me right now is reality. But Jesus is saying, you know what? Fruit? Sometimes what you, how you know what is, what is right is through a maturing process, is through putting a seed in the ground and watering it and weeding it and letting it grow up and it producing fruit. And if that fruit is good, then you know that they've been shown right by results. We ask the question, what kind of fruit is being produced by a person or their ministry or their church? may be very difficult to see right off the bat. It may take time and take seasons, and this is what Jesus is trying to tell us. And this is why Jesus, in verse 21, he continues, he says, Look, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. The word, the Greek here for Lord is kurios. And it kind of carries with it this, this undying devotion of following close. When you couple that with this word do, will enter the kingdom, only those who actually do the will of my Father. I love this word actually in the Greek, it's poyo. And it's more than just like do the do or just do it, right? It, it, it carries something different. It almost like uh, this idea of, of creation, like creating the gospel, the creating love in places where love did not previously exist. Probably the best understanding of pollo that I, I could come up with is hot pockets. You know, hot pockets, right? Hot pockets are, are, are what? They're like flaky, wonderful, you know, pastry, and they're stuffed with like yummy goodness, right? You could put anything in a hot pocket. They got hot pockets for everything. They got, pep you want pepperoni pizza? They got a hot pocket for that. You want broccoli and cheese and ham? Hot pocket for that. You want it? You get a hot pocket. And, and you know, you think about all this wonderful goodness. What is outside of the hot pocket? Walmart. 
And what we're called here is, is to create these poyos, these, these gospel hot pockets in our culture, in our workplace, in our schools, and even in our churches. Where we go, and even if there's chaos and consumerism and ugliness and greed all around us, that we are meant to create these gospel hot pockets of love. And I think that one of the most chilling things is this last verse. But I will reply, I never knew you. That, that's terrifying. Somebody who said, Lord, Lord, and did all these things. I've never cast out a demon. These guys cast out a demon. I never knew you. Only those who create gospel hot pockets. And I think that this is the question that we have in front of us today that is essential for each and every one of us to answer because right here, we have the hinge point. It's not about the causeway. It's not about a tree and it's not about the fruit. It comes down to this one central question. Does Jesus know you? Does Jesus know you? I can't think of a more important question than that. Does Jesus know you? Not did you like Jesus on Facebook. He's not going to ask that. Not, you know, did you within 30 seconds share that stupid religious photo on Facebook to prove that you are a fully devoted follower of Christ? You send me one of those, I'm going to unfriend you. (laughs) Cast you into the virtual pit of despair. <laughs> Hate those. The central question is not, did you go to church on Easter? Not even if you said the salvation prayer. Put your stones away. No. The ultimate question that everything hinges on is if Jesus really knows you. And I think this leads us to one of the most beautiful couple of sentences in all of the New Testament. Because you've got to be wondering, well, how does Jesus get to know me? And Jesus tells us, In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. That's a very, very different picture of how Jesus gets to know you and how you get to know Jesus. That Jesus does not break down the door as judge, jury, and executioner, but He knocks on the door. And if you open up your heart, your mind, your soul, and invite Him in and share life with Him and allow Him to get to know you, then 
you will be able to spend eternity with Him, with a right relationship with God and a right relationship with your loved ones in a place of restored perfection. Because in the end, it's not about a gate. It's not about a tree. It's not about fruit. It's about if, G, if you opened up the door for Jesus so He could open up the door for you. You guys pray with me? Dear God, I just pray for those of us who don't know how to answer the question if Jesus knows us. God, I just believe that you are knocking on the door of many of our hearts and our souls and our minds, and we've tried to do all of these different things to kind of earn your favor, but we have found them all falling short. And in this, we realize that what you are calling us to do is just open up the door for you and allow you to know us. And you say, when you come in, it's not in a robe of judgment, but a poncho of friendship where you share a meal together. God, I just pray for anybody who wants to be able to answer that question with all conviction. Do you know them? That they will open up the door and invite you in. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow.